Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere that it needs to be. For those of us in the broadband industry, we often use the, the phrases of um, economic development and innovation and jobs and broadband is one way to impact economic development because it creates jobs and it brings on new innovation to a community. But, but I have to ask the question, um, well, one, is that really true? Uh, and if it is indeed true, can you actually plan for that kind of outcome, you know, saying we're going to bring innovation? Because innovation is a somewhat, uh, or can be, a somewhat nebulous term. So to kind of gain, bring a little clarity to this subject, I decided to uh, invite Robert Bell, who's one of the co-founders of Intelligent Community Forum to uh, be a guest on the show, one, because he has a new book coming out, Brain Game, which we will talk about in a minute, but because his business is really looking at communities and how well they actually do this job of improving the local economy using technology to influence um, innovation and job creation. So, Robert, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and as I said, you know, your expertise and, and many years' experience is in that area of, you know, technology on one hand, community on the other, and how do you actually bring the, the, the former, the technology, to the community and produce um, economic outcomes through innovation and job creation? And I will start with maybe the most obvious of questions. Um, <clears throat> what is innovation and how exactly do you measure it, let alone you know, to try to draw a direct line between broadband and said innovation? Okay, good question. Innovation is, is creating something new, and that can mean that you are literally you know, designing it and building it. It can mean you've come up with a new way of doing something. It can mean that you found a new source of supply for something that you already want to do. So, you know, one of the classic examples that's non-technical is the Sears Roebuck catalog. Some guys, Sears and Roebuck figured out that they could publish a catalog and, and ship to, in this case, it was largely the farming community around the United States. And it was an unbelievable innovation, and yet what an incredibly simple idea. Mm-hmm. But they made it work, and Sears Roebuck was, you know, a big economic power for many years based on that. So, the, the difference, I think, probably in our digital age here is that the, the rate at which we see innovation taking place is very, very high because, because information technology makes everything cheaper. You know, pretty much everything we want to do is faster and cheaper and maybe better. That's a judgment call. Um, you know, think of yourself going to the library, or I think of myself going to the library for information 20 or 30 years ago, and then I think about the fact that I can learn pretty much anything I want to know in about a minute and a half sitting at my computer. Um, mm-hmm. That contrast is right there. So as, as things get cheaper, as it becomes cheaper to innovate, and as we innovate increasingly on a digital basis, producing things like apps, um, that, that innovation rate, first of all, goes up very, very, you know, it becomes much more um, powerful it raises the competitive bar for everybody, but the good news is I think it spreads out the opportunities much farther and wider than the, geographically than they used to be spread. Mm-hmm. So in some respects, um, it's, it's almost like saying innovation is in the eye of the beholder because on the front end of these network projects, you're really not going to have a crystal ball, per se, that will look down and say, oh, we're going to do X and X is going to, you know, put our community on the map, correct? Well, some wise, well, some wise man defined, said that invention is the process of turning um, money into ideas, and innovation is the process of turning ideas into money. So ultimately, <laughs> innovation only, you know, how do you measure innovation? You see an economic impact. You see a, bu- a business achieves um, growth in some area, creates a new line of business, a community has more successful companies, a community makes itself more attractive to its current citizens and also to people moving in because it's been innovating in its delivery of services. 
So all innovation always has to have very tangible outcomes. Do you know always very precisely what they're going to be when you start? Well, you know, of course not. In real life, we never do. We start with a plan, and as the general said, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very true, very true. We have seen that time and time again. So let's talk a little bit about um, your organization, because I think that will provide a context in which we can talk about um, your, your book that you've released, but also, you know, coming back and putting some more uh, definition and shape to the answer to the question, you know, what is innovation and how do you, you know, know it when it arrives, or maybe you don't know it when it arrives. But, but, but your work and what um, Intelligent Community Forum does really tackles this issue up close and personal, and not in the U.S., but also the world. Correct, yeah. We, we founded this about 15, I think it was just 15 years ago this year, because we perceived a gap in how um, folks in cities and regions were approaching the issue of their local economy. And the gap was that everybody, you know, we were still sort of doing what we'd always done. We were chasing smokestacks. We were focusing most of our energies on business attraction and not very much on, on growing and nurturing the businesses we had you know, sort of uh, hunting and gathering instead of farming our own land. Um, and we'd also noticed that there was, you know, just tumultuous changes happening with some places in terrible trouble after having been successful in the past and other places beginning to, you know, seem to catch a wave of something new. So what we'd concluded after looking at it for a while was that the, the, the determining factor was this information and communications technology revolution that was changing just about everything we're doing, um, you know, from... <laughs> Well, the list goes on and on. I mean, how we, can, how we consume, how we entertain ourselves, how we learn, how we uh, govern, how we worship, for that matter, is being transformed. So that has become a fundamental um, threat, if you will, to sort of established waves of life all around the world. But we conclude it's also, there's also another edge to that sword, which is that ICT equips cities and regions with the ability to to build their economies, to solve social problems, and even to enrich their cultures in ways that they never could before. And this, this is true all the way from places with 5,000 inhabitants up to places with 5 million and 15 million and 20 million. Uh, and we, our basic purpose in life is to learn how people are doing it well and to share the, that knowledge and those stories as broadly as we can because we're not, we don't really want to have everybody keep reinventing the wheel in different locations. If they can turn around and look at an example and go, wow, something like that, not quite that, but something like that might work in my community. Let's try it. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that, that's kind of the payoff for everything we do is when that, that moment happens, and we, we see it over and over and over again. So now, what did ICF look like then versus now? I know there, there were there were three of you that that over time are you know, identified as the as co-founders. But um, I was reading, and I can't remember exactly where. I think I was reading on your website some of the description of things that were being done back then. But it was very lean. Uh, well, it was sort of lean operation, and now you're doing this. Um, you know, this year-long exercise of evaluating and assessing hundreds of communities around the globe. Your humble roots, what were they? And, well, uh, yeah, I mean, we, 15 years ago we were an award program, and we, we, we picked an intelligent community of the year based upon some fairly rough metrics, and, um, and that was nice. Um, if you fast forward to today, we do have now a, a very intensive process that runs for a full year in which we, we look at hundreds of communities, some of which tell us about themselves and others of which we research. We pick 21 of them based upon, uh, we actually have an international um, academic group with um, professors from about five or six countries that, um, that give, select the, what we call the Smart 21, our semifinalists for our award program. Uh, we, then go with them, we then have them fill out a very intensive questionnaire, which is, uh, gets analyzed by a research company based in India. They give us some scoring for for them, and, and the top seven, you know, in their ranking, become our semi our finalists, the top seven. Uh, and then from there, we go out and visit the communities. We write reports for an international jury that uh, that reads those reports and votes on it, votes on their favorites. 
we combine those two scores and one of the communities rises to the top. So that, that's, all, that's all very interesting and it's, it's, everybody loves a good competition. And this year um, on the 9th of, I'm sorry, the 6th of, uh, no, the 5th, I'll get this right, of, uh, of June, we announced that Toronto, up in Ontario province, was our intelligent community of the year. So we made some, some people very happy there. But really, all along in our business model, the award program has been intended to be uh, maybe the straw that, straw that stirs the drink, but the drink is about the research data that's generated by that program because all those communities for all these years have been telling us, you know, giving us lots of facts. And so we now publish, you mentioned our book Brain Gain that's coming out on the 23rd of June. Um, we go out and do a lot of education under a program we call the Community Accelerator um, so that communities can ask us to come in and speak and teach and help them basically get, you know, get, that acceleration happening, get everybody in their community on the same page so that together they can begin to make a difference. So it's been, it's been, it's been a good ride, and um, we think we've got a lot, a, lot more, a lot more ahead of us. Interesting. So how, how has this journey been? What are some, in, in broad strokes, what are some of the changes in how technology is impacting local economies now versus how they were impacting local economies uh, 15 years ago? Has, has the pace of innovation increased as a result of using technology? Uh, is it about the same? Well, I, I don't know exactly how you measure the pace of innovation. It, it's, it always seems like it goes faster every year. Um, we think there's something very interesting and fundamental going on, which is that you know, most of the infrastructures we think about, and, and broadband is really just another kind of infrastructure with some very interesting and powerful capabilities, but it's basically like a road, like a rail line, like a, um, a superhighway, a uh, seaport, an airport. It has, it has connecting properties, right? Mm -hmm. and, and one of the most interesting things we're finding is that the infrastructures of most of the 20th century and going into the early part of our new century have, have reinforced concentration, right? It's all lines flow into the big urban centers, and the UN talks about how many, how many of us are going to be living in big urban centers in 2030 or 2050. Um, we've developed a point of view that says, you know, there's going to be a countervailing pressure here. And it is that as broadband sweeps out into the rural areas of the world, and it's, it's happening, it's happening. I mean, it's always slow, but we always ultimately decide that universal service is required, whether it's electricity or whether it's highways or whether it's telephone service. You know, as a public policy matter, we end up insisting on it. And so as that happens, that's going to create a different kind of economic pressure, which is going to, it's going to make it possible increasingly for people to not necessarily have to move to a big city to make a living, to make a living at something that they you know, want to do. And we're seeing more and more of these examples of rural areas developing as new small centers of sometimes of tremendous innovation in places that you probably never heard of, um, those of us who hang out in bigger cities. So we're calling this effort the rural imperative, and we're really keeping our eye on it because we think that broadband creates something new, a new condition that has never existed before that's going to empower the less populated parts of our country and many other countries to, to, to uh, participate in the economy, to provide good jobs to young people, and to you know, really maintain a wonderful way of life far into the future in ways that they could never hope to do. Hmm. So if I look at this and think about then, you know, all the changes that I observe, you know, I work at this from a different angle than, than you guys, but we see plenty of the same things and we probably talk to a lot of the same, uh, the same communities. The, the, the basic then of the rural imperative is then what, that you will use technology to make the rural area more leading edge? Is that the bottom line? Sure. Yeah, well, in other words, to make it more leading edge, the way I think of it about it is is to build another economy on top of an economy that's already there. So divert, to diversify the economy. So um, one of our one of our poster children is a, the little city of Stratford in Ontario. It's um, about two hours outside of Toronto. It's about thirty-two thousand people. It's got a Shakespeare festival, which you know is is wonderful little cultural cultural attractor. Um, and for most of the last 30 or 40 years, it's basically had a four-month economy because, you know, the, shape, the, the festival's open. It's the biggest employer in town. turns out a lot of, a lot of economic impact. And then the weather gets cold, and, it, and that's it. 
they set out very consciously to create another economy on top of that. And so they own their own utility and they used it to run fiber, a fiber network and to deliver really good quality broadband services to their to business parks that they built as well as to um, major employers and, of course, the citizens. On the strength of that, they've attracted a couple of, they've attracted a big IT operation for a bank, a big data center for a bank. Um, they have attracted technology companies to come in and do pilots um, of, of new technologies from Cisco to Toshiba to ones like Interop that are not as familiar. Um, and they've, they've really created this kind of secondary economy. They've, extend, they've actually used ICT to extend their tourist season out to six months through online marketing and some very clever apps that they're doing. Um, it's just a remarkable story. It's a remarkable story. And so they're, they're literally building, and they're, you know, they've always had, they've had automotive assembly for quite some time. They're helping their automotive assembly, you know, companies and they're turn into new, you know, turn to new industries, again, partly using that ICT infrastructure. And these are all things that this little teeny tiny city should never have been able to do, mm-hmm. except that it's very strategically using this broadband asset that it created to give itself a completely different future than you might have expected. And that's, that's what we're seeing in, in ways large and small in lots and lots of places. Rural cities and, and, and counties refusing to think small, but instead saying, you know, I can build exactly the kind of economy I want here because I've got this capability now, this, this broadband capability. The next thing that I've got to do is to have the imagination and the courage to start acting on that. Hmm. So, um, though I'm not sure it makes a huge amount of difference, how much of that drive is being made out of, say, desperation versus someone or someone's work waking up one day and say, we're going to run toward this vision? Well, you know, a, a crisis is a wonderful thing. Um, <laughs> and we, you know, we believe that, that a, lot of, you know, a lot of places either, they either have crises or they, are, they foresee very clearly a crisis. They, you know, in many cases, the crisis is we're stagnant. We've been sitting here. We haven't grown any jobs in 20 years. You know, that, that can't be sustained. Right. That can't be sustained. Or they may look at the, their – they may look of I – mean, there's a lot of places, rural places in particular, that, that are clo- either um, – they've got close to tourist businesses or are not that far removed from major cities. And so they've got a very nice kind of you know, slow-moving business in something related to tourism or culture or the culinary arts. And it's very nice. It's a wonderful place to live, but there's no economic dynamism. And so the question is, what happens to those young people – who grow up here and, and are smart and want, you know, want something, they're going to leave. And that's just a tragedy. Mm-hmm. So one of our goals is to help these places you know, keep the kids at home, the, one who, the ones who, who just as soon would stay if they could find an outlet for their talents. Um, those are the ones that you know, we like to see. I've been working this recently with a place called Walla Walla in the state of Washington. It's a mm-hmm. western, sorry, eastern Washington, beautiful place kind of the Napa Valley of the North, or as they like to say, they're the Walla Walla of the South. Um, <laughs> but they've got 100 and, 120 wineries. They've got this fantastic culinary scene, um, nice arts and culture. And so it's a great tourist destination. It's also a very strong agricultural region. It ships um, winter wheat you know, all around the world. And that's great, but they want something more, right? Because they've got they, their high school is turning kids out of a digital media program that are going out and getting jobs, you know, with major um, digital companies in, in Seattle or in or San Francisco or in uh, Los Angeles, you know. And they're leaving town to get their education, even though there's two there's an excellent university right there in town, and there's a, a good community college, actually a fantastic community college right there in town. You know, so they don't have all those pieces, all those en- the, the components of the engine are not yet all r- working together, but they have a plan. They see how these things should connect, and they're going to be working on that. And that's, that's the kind of model that, that we're seeing more and more of, and I, I personally find it very exciting. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to give it a little bit of context uh, to what you just said, in Atoma, which is, uh, for those MASH fans, the home of Radar O'Reilly, um, the, the community there has actually that dynamic where they have a uh, community college that produces an incredible number of job placements in the uh, fiber optics industry and in the robotics industry. So right, these are very leading edge, you know, um, leading edge industries. But th- there is just a constant migration out of Atumla to either the East Coast or the West Coast. 
So basically, uh, one of the, the issues when they were looking at their broadband planning was, can we use broadband to somehow reverse that trend? Because a lot of the people who were leaving didn't necessarily want to leave, but if you're, you know, you've just been trained to be this awesome, uh, you know, robotics engineer, and the only job opportunities you see are in New York or San Francisco, what are you going to do? And so then the challenge is, you know, as a broadband planner was how do you tie something or how do you create something that holds these folks in town? And which is what I gather you're, you're talking about there as far as, you know, keeping people around. Well, I am, and it's, it's, a, it's really the fundamental question. I mean, there have been many, many, many places, including some very impressive ones. Um, Singapore, which I'm actually going, going to be in next week, was, as an example, is a, obviously an incredibly cutting-edge place. Well, they announced, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, they were building a, um, a massive broadband uh, network, fiber and coaxial cable, and, oh, it was huge and made headlines. And then they went absolutely quiet for a few years until I began seeing some more headlines. And this time, all the, all the stories were about the programs they were launching to encourage adoption of this resource. Mm-hmm. So they had gotten all excited about building the, the, the network and hadn't you know, thought through how do we put users on this network, how do we use this network to generate economic activity. And that's you know, not, not taking nothing away from them. They were pioneers. They were doing this back in the late 90s. So the key, you know, the key thing is, is to figure out how do you use this network as a new foundation for the economy. And what we see over and over again is you have to achieve this kind of interesting balance. On the one hand, you've got to work really hard to get your educational institutions, whatever they might be, um, whether they're just secondary schools, community colleges, whether you're lucky enough to have a university or one or more of them in your region, uh, you need to get them on side and working very closely with business and with <clears throat> local government to understand what is we're trying, you know, what kinds of jobs we're we trying to create, what kinds of jobs are either exist there's existing demand for them in the community, or what kinds of industries would, would we like to target. And so you're working hard on that that aspect of creating the skilled people that the economy needs. But on the flip side, the, the city or the region needs to be working really hard on business creation and attraction in those targeted sectors. And it's not easy, and it sure as heck is not quick, but it's, it's, there's just no substitute for pounding away at, you know, if you're going to be in digital media and you've got a reason to think that you're, you're, you know, your place could be strong in that because you've got a community college that puts out a lot of content in there or you've got a brilliant innovator in town, then you really have to work strategically over you know, a number of years to begin to build up a bit of a base. That's, I mentioned Stratford. They decided to do that. They managed to do a deal with... Um, a nearby very prestigious university, the University of Waterloo, which, from which spun out BlackBerry and OpenText and a bunch of places, um, to locate a digital media campus in Stratford. They're now running hundreds of students through that, and they've set up an accelerator, an incubator, to help some of those kids you know, start business, businesses which are going to stay in Stratford. Some of them will leave, but they're trying to create, very consciously create those opportunities and tie them into this existing great font of, of content called the Shakespeare Festival. Right, so it's, very, it's, it's really a matter of matching up these components and getting them working together. And over and over again, uh, part of the excitement of the work that we do, and you've, I'm sure, experienced this, Craig, you're called into a meeting, there's a bunch of people from different parts of the community. So there's, there's the city people, there's you know, the infrastructure guy, there's the communications guy and cable franchise person, and there's the, you know, maybe a community college president and secondary school. And there's people from you know, a museum or an art gallery are sitting around this table, and you're watching them for the first time begin to realize that everything they do connects to what everybody else in the room does. And they have to foster that kind of collaboration for, for a long time to get results. And sometimes that is the ultimate of challenges because, uh, you know, I've been hearing lately the word silos being used more and more. <laughs> and, you know, a few years ago when people talked about silos, they were usually talking about in corporations there are these silos of workers that people try to figure out how to create applications to cross the silos or open up the silos. And lately, I'd say in the last six months, I've been hearing more of these comments about we have silos, and they're usually referring to their stakeholders who work, in essence, in a vacuum. They have never worked together. 
don't envision working together. In some cases, they don't like each other. And yet, as the broadband planner um, or any technology planner, you're trying to figure out, whoa, whoa, I, got, you know, I have this, this other challenge, and it's not about just putting in the right cables and the right connectors. You know, I've got a social-slash-political problem that I or challenge, however you want to phrase it, that must be overcome if I'm going to move this whole vision forward. And we call it advocacy, and I would actually say it's the problem. You know, the technology is relatively simple and straightforward. There's, it's sure there's lots of things to decide, and there's lots of budgetary issues to think through, and how do I make sure that I'm doing this in a way so that I can get payback along the way and not, you know, get too far out ahead of demand and not, you know, get my taxpayers in trouble, which gets me in trouble. But the real issue is how do you get people from various different silos, as you say, to realize that there's a much better world outside if they just, you know, reach outside of that comfortable silo, connect to some others, and, and, and do something, start a project, start some initiative. And again, that's, that's kind of the magic of this, is you try to find a couple people from different, who, who live in those different silos who want to collaborate about something, and you help them be successful, and then everybody looks at that and goes, well, that didn't actually hurt, and wow, that actually looked pretty good. <laughs> and, you know, and then the next one happens. And because silos, I mean, it's just human nature. We're all comfortable with what we know. We're all uncomfortable or afraid of what we don't know. And we just have to kind of work together as a community to overcome that natural inclination of human beings to, to hide in the corner. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to uh, pose a question. I was just at the... Um where was I? I was at the Mountain Connect conference in Colorado, which, by the way, was a pretty awesome event to participate in. They've gone from 100 attendees last year to 270 this year, and lots of people wanting to push some sort of better, faster broadband forward. And in a discussion with um, one of the uh, infrastructure builders that was also in, at the conference, uh, we talked about um, you know, some sort of phrase to describe broadband and what it does, similar to how information superhighway was a great way to get people to adopt broadband because it was an analogy that people could refer to. Now we're trying to get people to say, you know, you need this speed, you need this technology, and to help them understand why because of the, in, the in benefit. And I and talked to this word transformer. You know, I said, well, you know, because what this technology is doing is it it's transforming how businesses work and schools work and so forth. And the person I was speaking with came back with, yes, that is true, but there are a lot of people afraid of change. And if you go mm-hmm. in trying to sell the value as being change, uh, this could blow back and become a problem that people then entrench more and refuse to accept the technology. Do you think that's a, a true assessment? Well, yeah, it's never a good idea to sell somebody something by saying, and by the way, we're going to change everything you're doing. Because most of us would prefer, you know, what we have works and what's different, we have no idea about. So, yeah, it's just a business colleague of mine once came up with a great phrase. She said, listen, this thing we're doing, it's unique, but it's not too different. Mm-hmm. which I thought was a great way of capturing it. Um, I just think that you know, the secret of this is, again, to always put it in terms that people understand. So um, you know, if the strength of this particular place is agriculture, um, let's figure out how we use these tools to make that work better. So in, in Mitchell, South Dakota, which is another one of our, our Smart 21, really remarkable place, one of the many things they've done with their broadband network and their technical institute is to help the farmers in the community um, move into precision agriculture, getting much higher yields by, by measuring everything that goes on in their fields and knowing exactly how much fertilizer, you know, how much irrigation is actually required as opposed to just you know, rule of thumb stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, that's a great example of, okay, if I'm talking to you know, a, a set of, of successful farmers about how to make them more successful, well, I don't really care how we do it. Let's just talk about some tools. You know? So it's, it's always the concentration on the technology in our, in our experience is, is not a good thing. It's really just a, you know, it's a matter of, look, we, we really want to build you a better road. Do you, ha- do you have a problem with that? Right. Right, right, right. Okay. So um, it's a repositioning, if you will, 
where you still push for the change, but you basically disguise change as doing what you're already doing. I mean, really, yeah, I mean, you try, I mean it's also, you'd asked me earlier, I'm sorry, Craig, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you asked me earlier about sort of the last 15 years, and one of the differences is that 15 years ago when we were talking about broadband to people, they were looking at us like we had lobsters coming out of our ears. It was like, what are you guys <laughs> talking about? And now, you know, I, I have just been doing some work in rural Louisiana, and everybody there you know, knows what I'm talking about. And if I, show, if, if I show them a tablet, they've either got one or they've got kids with one. And so everybody's now touching this. And it's not that, it's not that hard to get on the same, you know, playing, I find, the same level with pretty much anybody and get them to start talking about how frustrated they are that they've got, you know, bad broadband. Okay, now let's talk. <laughs> You've got bad broadband. What do you want to do about it? Um, so I, I don't. I don't think it. I think it's a mistake for all of us in the in this movement, if you will, to try to oversell broadband as as the cure for all your ills. Uh, it's not. It's a, it's a really powerful tool, and if you implement it the right way, you will see a tremendous amount of impact out of it. If you you know just chase the chase the um, the, the shiny toy, uh, probably you're not going to do so well. Right, and I think that is the hardest thing for. Uh, an industry, a technology industry, you know, call it broadband or Salesforce automation, um, the hardest thing is to get tech people to, in essence, undersell their wonderful technology um, because that's counterintuitive to both how, the, how the, the venture capitalist that funded them and the president and management team that runs them and heaven knows the marketing team that promotes them you know, that's, that's just counterintuitive. You know, this is mm-hmm. awesome technology. That's why we spent 20 years building it. But mm-hmm. the reality, as I think you're seeing and have seen for a while, is that, you know, technology advocates must be counterintuitive to make this technology actually sell. Sure, because this is a technology that's about people's lives. Right. You're not selling. You know, you're not selling it to the leading edge. You're selling it to to, have it to be powerful. It has to impact the lives of a big segment of the population. Mm-hmm. And so, what they need, you know, it's, that's like anything else. What they need is what counts, not what you want to sell them. Yeah, this is very true. Now, Ben, riddle me this, Batman. Um, if if the truth of broadband, the value of broadband is that it transforms how you do things. For example, I was talking to these guys at this bank uh, for an article, and I called up, and the guy was like, you know, I was just playing with my Xbox, and, uh, and I got distracted. That's why we were late for the call or whatever. And, you know, so your first reaction is, why is this grown man who's a bank president or vice president, you know, in the middle of the day playing with an Xbox? And as it turns out, the Xbox, because it has this feature to be able to uh, to video, like to follow someone via video, and to literally follow them around the room and zoom in when mm-hmm. you know need be and so forth. He goes, well, we just got this gig network service, so with the speed of the gigabit, we can use these Xboxes as a less expensive video conferencing tool. So, in essence, they have taken a toy, you know, a home toy, and granted, adults play with these particular home toys, but they have figured out how to solve a basic business issue for a lot less money by taking the toys, taking the the new speed that they have, because they didn't have anything close to a gig previous to this, and, and, and transform how they're doing video conferencing. And we had a good chuckle on that, but I also looked at it as, whoa, you know, this is, um, I mean, this is pretty fantastic, you know, but it's an example of transforming a way of doing business. How do I reconcile the desire to want to explain something as, you know, the reason that you might want this is that it can transform how you do things for the better, but but avoid that knee-jerk reaction of, oh, this has changed. I don't really want to deal with change today. Well, I mean, we do it through stories. You just told me a story. It's a great story. And, you know, you're talking about a, a video game player, the Xbox, and that's not too scary. And here's somebody cleverly figured out how to innovate, how to do something new with established technology. 
and delivering a benefit to his company that they can probably they can measure in dollars and cents. Okay, I get that. That doesn't sound too frightening. So you telling me you can <laughs> screw around with this Xbox and that little Kinex thing and it will follow you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's that's to, in our experience. That's what takes the a lot of it away. We like to say that a big part of our work at ICF is inspiration. We're interested in insp- telling you stories that inspire you and make you realize, well, I can do that. I can do something like that, sure. Um, and it's just a matter of finding what it is that's important to you. So it's really, it's you know, again, this is this is all about this is, this is all about people. People often, you know, say want me to start talking to them about technology. You know, I'm happy to talk with them about technology. I'm a pro- propeller head too. But I'm really interested in, in how, how you transform the people. And, and I'm not going to transform those people. They're going to transform themselves because they see something they want. Mm-hmm. So I don't think change is something you have to force on people. I think you have to find, point them in a direction where they see something they want, and then they will change without knowing that they're changing. None of us. I mean, that's everybody's favorite way of changing is to just do it and, and then look back and go, wow, that was different back then. Hmm. True. I, that, that, that is a... Um and again, I think it's kind of, I don't know, somewhat counter, it's counterproductive unless as a marketing person or as a, uh, you know, industry pundit or as a media source, you accept that um, you've got you've to step aside from what has been your core belief, you know, the greatness of technology for a number of years. And maybe... Because uh, our last show talked about education. In other words, how do you educate people or what do you tell them to kind of get them on board? And so probably this point, you know, what, what you and I, Robert, are talking about points to a need to educate the providers. You know, all of those mm-hmm. people in that chain that supply all this technology, maybe the first thing that needs to happen is, you know, they need a massive re-education. You know, well, you've got to stop selling this the way we sold PCs in, you know, 96, to, you know, we're, we're going to tell nice stories that are non-threatening and low-tech to get people to see, like, ways in which they can create awesome new solutions. I mean, that's kind of well, I think, yeah. And I think leadership is always like that. In, in, in our book, Brain Gain, we have a chapter called How to Save Your City and Still Win the Next Election. And we, <laughs> we, call, it, we call it that. I call it that because... It, that's really the art of leadership in times of change. You need to create a vision. You need to help the people who, you know, who elected you or appointed you or who work for you, you know, maneuver there. But you don't do it by telling them that they have to, and you don't do it by um, making them terribly uncomfortable. Instead, you, you, know, you try things. You, you carefully manage the, change, the expectations. You introduce change, and then you say, how did we do on it? You make everybody a participant in it. Uh, it's, it's, it's vitally important. Um, and there's so many things. I, mean, it's, I think it's important because working on this book really made me think, think about the fact that most of the things that we deal with these days um, the big, big issues are counterintuitive. What we think about them and what we feel about them is usually dead wrong. Um, there's, we have a chapter here about immigration. Um, and, you know, again, at the local level, immigration is a national issue, but the question is what happens in your local community. And, and over and over again, there's a whole, we did a lot of research about the fact that everybody hates immigrants. You know, I'm sorry, everybody is afraid of them. They're, they look different. They speak different languages. They eat different foods. They worship different, you know, different gods. It's just and it's scary, and that's just the way we are wired as human beings. And if you ask, I think there was a poll done in the European Union right now about the impacts of immigration, pretty much every one of the countries was like, oh, immigrants make things worse, much, much worse. You know, and, and the reality is immigration is this incredibly positive force economically. It creates jobs. It creates economic growth. It, it, having, having immigration in your town in most cases is a net benefit, but that's not how it feels. Mm-hmm. And so part of leadership in this world of fast-paced technology change where the borders are so porous to, of everything, you know, not just the nation's borders, but our, my community's borders, the borders of my life leak out electronically to thousands of other people whom I barely know. Mm-hmm. Leadership is about, is about under, you know, helping people see what's really going on as opposed to what they, their first intuitive response may be and just, you know, 
give them give people the facts and say here's here's what it looks like what do we want to do together um, Columbus, uh, Ohio, was one of our top seven this year, and the, the Mayor Coleman there, when he was, shortly after he was elected, did this amazing thing. He put together a group of business leaders because he, he really wanted to revitalize their downtown and, and change the economy. And he convinced them to come with him on a trade mission to the city of Toronto. And he did it because Toronto was then and still is probably the most diverse city in North America. They something like half the population you know, grew up speaking another language in another place. Um, and and he, what he wanted them to see was how, inc- how much incredible impact, positive impact, it had on Toronto's economy and culture. And then he brought them back, you know, and, and on the strength of that kind of effort, Columbus has become enormously diverse, the biggest Somali population in the U.S., huge Mexican population. Um, and they've managed to make that work economically. It's contributed to their growth and contributed to their their, their, their culture in, in many powerful ways. So we need we we as as technology gurus or technology <laughs> as propeller heads. Let's call ourselves propeller heads. You know, need to be thinking about those human factors and about whatever it is that people are scared of. You know, we've got to find a way to to help them deal with that not by lying to them, not by trying to pull any wool over their eyes, or not by trying to manipulate them, but by couching things in, in ways that make sense in that context and showing them that there's a better way and then letting them prove it to themselves. Because mm-hmm. people will only go someplace if they believe it. I should make that a bumper sticker. Because <laughs> that <laughs> no, is the essence. You know, I mean, I go around and, you know, you go to these conferences. I mean, it, it was an interesting show um, on... Uh, on Tuesday, because we were really discussing the, the what is a common disconnect between those in the technology industry and those who can benefit by the technology, and it's all about you know how you communicate and what you communicate, and you know so that bumper sticker kind of sums up really uh, you know what we're what we're trying should be trying to do. And that's mm-hmm. a good segue into this new book that you guys have released, uh, One Author to Another. I know what a challenge it is to get this thing done. So first, congratulations on uh, bringing you. this out. And, and I'm saying this is Thank the you. third, right? Uh, yes, this is the third one. Okay. So, so you've done this thrice and, and still can stand up and talk about it, and your brain hasn't fallen out. So, you know, like I said, from experience, I know that's a major feat. What? is the book about and what was the inspiration for writing it and it's called uh, brain gain brain gain well the book is about a lot of issues but fun, you know it's fundamentally of course about our our underlying belief that information and communications technology is this underlying transformative force and you have to figure out how to make it work for you as or it's going to it's going to run over you i mean it's basically it's mm-hmm. that kind of stark choice um but we call it the brain gain because it really comes down to, for all communities, the question is about getting, you know, getting brain gain going on in your community as opposed to brain drain with a D. Ah, um, right. And that's, that's, that stark balance is basically the theme of the book from beginning to end, is the place that you, the place that you live, that you love, that you're creating, that the, you are committed to. Is it the kind of place that folks want to be, need to be, um, or is it a place that folks can't wait to get out of? And that's a, you know, it's a simple question, if you will, but the answer to it, of course, is very complex. And if you want to move from being a place that's experiencing brain drain, the negative side, to one that's experiencing brain gain, we try to talk about, again, examples, storytelling, about how many, many places have worked that problem in all of its aspects from you know, the broadband infrastructure to the educational side of things to the effort to create your own innovative businesses and also attract innovative businesses in, dealing with the folks who are kind of left behind and you've got to help them come with you, and then managing all the politics of it and managing the, the, the community change process um, that is ultimately going to determine your success. And then, mm-hmm. by the way, realizing, <laughs> we wrote, I wrote our last chapter, it's called Getting into Heaven, and it's basically about the fact that, let's look forward a little bit about what, what kind of changes are coming at us that, that we're, you know, we've, we know how much change we've been through, what's coming at us, and it's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> there's a lot coming at us that we have to prepare ourselves for. Okay. So, 
should someone expect what to to when they finish reading the book? Is this about a new um, uh, developing a new way of thinking or a a a structured way of thinking that will lead to uh, greater innovation and and greater jobs? I mean, what's I'm always looking for the flow. You know, like what what mm-hmm. what are you supposed to do with this uh, or expecting this book? Well, I think I hope that when people finish it, they will turn around and look at what's going on in their city and their region with very different eyes. Because, um, again, we're interested in uncovering the big trends and then showing in very specific ways how they play out and how how the habits of a community can either be helping it or be standing in its way. Um, this is not a textbook. You know, this is not – we decided to not be – to lay out principles and give people bullet point lists of things they should do. Um, we're trying to get it really at the heart of how people think. Because um, ultimately what we've, it's funny this year at our, at our, our summit, which just finished at the first week of June, um, our theme this year was, we called it community as canvas, meaning um, think of your community as a work of art. So it consists of a culture. It, it may have a lot of arts you know, and culture with a capital C in it, but it also has a history. It has a legacy. It has attitudes that people carry around with them. And those are the, probably the most powerful tools of change available to you if you know how to use them. Mm-hmm. And so this whole book is kind of dedicated to that notion that what we need to do is to understand our problems in new ways and then look at the examples of other places that have had success in dealing with those problems in ways that you may never have thought of. Uh, and so I'm hoping people, you know, I'm hoping everybody who reads this who is responsible for community development will walk away with at least five or ten, you know, ideas that they can say, wow, you know, I'd like to try something like that here. I don't know quite how to make it work, but that's, that's, a, that's a powerful idea that, that ties right to who we are or addresses a problem that, we, that keeps me up at night. Okay. Now, one of the chapters in here is the uh, three sides of innovation. Um, mm-hmm. In summary, what's what's that about? Because I found, you know, of, of all the the, the the titles, you know, that one kind of jumped out, and I said, well, let me, let me check this one out first. And uh, but let, let, I'm going to let you tell it, not me. Retell it. <laughs> well, that that concerns one of the sort of one of the principles of of innovation that we see seem to work pretty much everywhere, which is um, the idea that innovation is a three-sided game in which business needs to be there, government, local government needs to be there, and institutions, whether they're universities and community colleges, sometimes they're major hospitals, sometimes they're major arts institutions. It doesn't really matter that much, but institutions are, are at the table. And they're all working very hard to understand each other, which is, again, the hardest part because they all speak a completely different language and have a completely different frame to look at the, at the, the, you know, at the problems and, cha- and opportunities of their community. When you can get them all on the same page working collaboratively, what happens is, first of all, you can get a, a tremendous upward spiral of innovation and economic growth, but most importantly, the, the impact of those things stay local. So something that you're, develop, you're, you're developing things that, were, that, that bring new money into the community and kind of keep it there as opposed to just you know, shipping it back out again. If you're running a, if you're running a branch plant economy, if, you've, if Walmart is your biggest employer, you're not really generating money in the community. You're just shipping it out to the Walmart company, and that's, you know, that's fine. That's, that's what they're in the business to do. But you're, through this three-sided innovation, this partnership among business, government, and institutions, is, is a tremendously powerful way to actually make sure that the benefit stays where it should stay in your community. Mm-hmm. Now, you use uh, Chattanooga as an example here, and you also talked about Waterloo. Well, while we're storytelling, and I know people have heard the story of Chattanooga a bazillion times, but um, in the context of our discussion, um, what was the takeaway about Chattanooga in this chapter, and what was the takeaway about Waterloo? Well, Chattanooga, yeah, I mean, the yeah, Chattanooga story is famous, and, and because they're great marketers. These are the guys who, who came up with the term gig city, you know, and didn't, didn't every other economic development official in the world kick himself and say, why didn't we get think of that? Because they're not the only people with a, they're not the only people with a gig, gigabit network, um, but they're good, they're good marketers. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there, you sort of, there, there you have, a, I think, a good example. You've got a, a city with a publicly owned utility that decided to, 
to run fiber everywhere, not for communications, but to better run its own plant so that it could actually, they, they think they can um, reduce their total capacity requirements by 40% by controlling the network um, based on billions of data points uh, a day. And that's going to save tremendous, tremendous amounts of money. And they were able to make that business case and then say, oh, well, let's throw in you know, communications while we're at it. So they've got great, a very powerful network running it up to a gigabit into every single facility, home, business, whatever, in their service area. It's city-owned, so the city was right there at the table working on that. And then the city also has a lot of strategies about how it can use that kind of advanced connectivity to, uh, to attract or keep an IBM, major IBM research center, a Volkswagen plant, a turbine plant, a, a plant that makes turbine blades for a European company that all you know, cited that connectivity in their decisions. Uh, and they're building out an arts and culture scene where they're training artists how to run businesses, and they're, so they're, they're getting a, a revival of tourism. And they're starting, they're just, when, when we were last dealing with them, they were just starting to get that buzz around Chattanooga being an exciting place to come and start an IT business, and that was really the whole Gig City University thing. Again, brilliant marketing. Attract some young innovators to come and come up with a business plan to use a gigabit of capacity, which nobody knows how to use. <laughs> nobody has the faintest idea how to use that capacity right now. But people mm -hmm. are starting. Your example of the, of the executive with the Connects system on his uh, Xbox is a great example of somebody who's starting to figure out how to use it. Um, so all that came together, but it only worked because all the parties were at the table together. Mm -hmm. um, Waterloo is the same thing. University of Waterloo, founded by a couple of business people who wanted, who were sick of ba dealing with badly educated employees. City of Waterloo and actually the, the Waterloo-Kitchener area, which is a, a triangle of its own. There's three cities up there. Um, working closely together and nurturing the, the rollout of companies, new companies like BlackBerry, OpenText, and many, many others. I mean, the, the whole, intelligent, the whole um, technology community of the, of the North America is busy running Waterloo to get hold of the talent that's being released by BlackBerry. I mean, <laughs> these guys, you know, get, losing your job at, at BlackBerry is turning out to be one of the best things that could happen to some of these people. They get just incredible opportunities coming to them. Um, and that all happened because they worked on it. It didn't just happen by itself. They, it happened because they consciously worked on those relationships among, among the parties, and they all saw that they had a common interest in helping each other stepping outside their silos. It's really what success looks like in the 21st century. Hmm. That is interesting. That's you know that causes me to you know to pause for a second because you know sometimes the simplest answers are the you know the best answers. And after having fought a number of issues you know over the years dealing with communities trying to move these projects forward, this is a um, <clears throat> a stark, consistent truth that you have people uh, in, in these different parts of the community that do not understand each other. And, in fact, mm -hmm. on, on the show, we had um, uh, the president of Hiawatha Broadband, who has done a number of partnerships with cities, and in some cases they uh, own the network with the cities together. In other cases, they basically build and run the network on behalf of the city. And when he was asked, you know, what fosters a win-win relationship, uh, his comment was, you know, I wish when we started, our our people, our, our, you know, in the company, had learned more about how municipalities work, and we also mm -hmm. wish that the municipalities had spent time learning more about how businesses work. And that's really what you're what you're saying is that if you do this exercise, now the institution being, you know, the the, the third element here, but if you bring these three together and you in some cases, maybe force them to understand each other, great things will come out the back end of the whole exercise. Yeah, except you can't force them. You can, you can bring them together and you can try to find something that people want to work on. You know, there's almost always something that, that everybody can agree is a good thing. I, mm -hmm. I heard a great uh, presentation by the president of the IBM University, which is their formal, formalized way to bring their folks together and think, think smart. And he said, one of the, again, I'm, I'm a great fan of the, of the unintended consequence and the thing going on that you don't notice until, until you know, it's, it's already there. 
And he said, they, they, at IBM, they do a lot of work with cities, and they do, you know, and he said, one of the things that he has observed personally is when you start doing this hard work of bringing the different groups together with their, their very different agendas and, and perspectives, sometimes competing agendas, and you get them together and they all start saying, we're going to work together, what very often happens is you go into a fallow period, and it appears that nothing's happening, Nobody's, nothing's, no, nothing's going forward. All we're doing is, is either arguing or ignoring each other. And he said, what's actually going on is that the parties are building trust. So they're finding things that they can connect about and work on. They may be very small and may, may seem almost unimportant, but in the process of doing it, they're building trust in each other. He said, because until trust is established, nothing can happen. Mm-hmm. I, just, I sat there, my, my jaw dropped, because I thought, well, yeah, of course, of course. So what we really should be focusing on for the first year of our time together is building trust. And if once trust is built, then we can make all kinds of progress. But in the absence of it, it's very difficult to get anything done on a collaborative basis. Interesting. That's a, um, you know, I was, I've talked to a couple of folks about, you know, how they do their broadband planning exercise, and I think universally we all start with um, education exercises in the sense of, uh, you know, we'll bring a group of doctors and another day bring a group of government folks and and so forth among the different stakeholders and do a a session of, um, you know, here's what broadband is, here's what it can do, and here are examples of what it can do. Now, what do you think it can do for you? And I think this is all a, a valid exercise, but from from listening to you, it sounds like maybe we just um, maybe ought to incorporate a I don't know some opening trust building exercise to basically bring the parties together in one room to demonstrate that whatever we talk about in these upcoming weeks or months, whatever. It's all going to be for the better or for the worse, depending on how well you guys trust each other and are willing to work together. And by making that point maybe up front, then all of those exercises that we do in the course of broadband planning will produce maybe better fruit faster. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I yes. I, I just don't think it can be an exercise like, you know, walk into a room and fall backwards and I'll catch you kind of thing. I think it literally, you know, trust is built by people doing things together and trust is built in that moment in which I've got a problem and Craig says, oh, well, here, listen, just let me call this guy. He can help you out. And I call that guy and you connect me and it solves my problem. And I go, wow, Craig really, he did what he, he said he was going to do something. He did it and it helped me. Uh, now trust, a bit of trust has been built. So I think that a lot of, you know, a lot of this early work is literally should be for, you know, in a fairly you know, constrained group of stakeholders representing with, you know, constituencies in the community and get them to get around, to have that, those conversations about, well, what are our biggest problems? What's, what's in our way? And, well, can we do, let's, let's just do something. Let's have a, an awareness campaign. Let's have a, 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 a business summit day where we'll invite everybody together. Let's work together on something that we all see some benefit in that doesn't have a lot of risk to it. But by working together toward that, we'll begin to, you know, develop the relationships upon which everything else is done. I just, I, you know, you said it earlier, and I think you just said it so well that, you know, as technologists, we tend to think about the technology, but it's the human part you've got to get right. And human beings have figured out how to work together over, over 10,000 years, right? And it, mm-hmm. it really doesn't change too much from the way it was back in the Stone Age. <laughs> we, we develop trust in the same, using the same methods that we used back then, and they work, you know, when they work, they work pretty well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, this is pretty fascinating, and I encourage folks to um, get a copy of the book. It's going to come out in, um, on the 23rd of this month. Uh, we are actually out of time, so we can't, you know, pursue a lot of these good topics anymore this time. But, Robert, since you have been a frequent guest of the show, and we will probably have you back again, uh, you know, the, the, the Gigabit Nation door is always open and always interesting to have to say about uh, innovation and technology and, and making good things happen. So thank you for being here. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure the audience appreciates it as well. 
Well, it's been my pleasure, Craig, and same, same here. Uh, we had you doing some live coverage of one of our summits. We're happy to have you back again. Excellent. And, folks, Monday we will actually have uh, folks from Toronto on the show to talk about the newest Intelligent Community of the Year. So you definitely want to check in 2 o'clock on, um, on Monday to listen to Toronto's story. It's a, it's a good one. It's a good one. So thank you, everybody, for being our audience today. Uh, hope, hope this has been a very good and valuable show. Let's see you again next week. Let's meet on Monday. Have a great weekend.